Mason Hurley, he alcoholic. Mason. Uh, my sobriety date is June 16th of 2021. <clears throat> and my home group is in Florence, South Carolina. It's the Shady Group. And, <laughs> yep. I, w- I debated I could really talk for an hour on just my home group and um, the love-hate relationship that I have with it. It's, uh, I mean, I love it, and I got sober there. But to give you a little glimpse into my home group, we meet 21 times a week. There's a noon meeting every day, a 5.30 meeting every day, and an 8 p.m. meeting every day. So I'll just leave it at that. You kind of let you fill in the blanks. Um, and, yeah, the uh, thank you for – thanks to the group. Thank you, Melissa, for asking me to speak. i uh definitely nervous. Uh, I was sitting there – thinking that the way I just felt in the lead up to this is how I felt when I took my first drink. Super nervous, very anxious, wanted to run away. And that's how I felt. That's what, I'm like, man, a drink would be nice right now. Like, it would, it would just calm me down, you know? And, uh, but no, I'm amongst friends and I hope uh, to convey what AA has done for me. I, I really was hopeless. And I can give you a quick glimpse. Uh, two years ago, so I'm, I'm coming up on two years sober, and two years ago, almost to the day, it's got to be close, but I was uh, I was living in Holly Springs, sort of. I, uh, I was living in my car, hanging out around Holly Springs, and I was... Uh, coming to this group when it met in Holly Springs and I was really, I was broke. I had no money and really nowhere to go. And I stumbled upon this parking lot and it was where the meeting was. It was where the annex was. And I knew from past experience where you guys left the key. And I went into the annex. I need to make, I'm making amends to the group is what I'm doing right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went in there, raided all the chips and nabs that I could, and just sat in the annex and just ate it. And it wasn't to be funny or vindictive. It was, it was out of necessity. Like, that's where my life was at that time. And, yeah, you know, that's just sad. It's just sad, at big time. And, uh, but I was thankful for that. You know, there's, I'm sure, I don't know, there's some sort of spiritual message in there somewhere. I'm not sure what it is, but... Uh, but just a funny story. I, so I took my first drink when I was 14 years old. It was in Raleigh. I had moved from Goldsboro to Raleigh. And, yeah, I felt just like I just described for whatever reason. I just felt different. I compared how I, uh, I, compared how I felt to how you looked. And it seemed like all these kids around me just had it figured out. You know, they didn't. They, they were cool and they had friends and they, I, I just felt alone and I took my first drink and the, the way it made me feel was, was addictive. I loved it. I loved the way alcohol made me feel. And I thought about it recently too. I didn't just like the way it made me feel. I actually liked to drink. I liked the physical action of taking shots and chasing it with Mountain Dew. That was my favorite thing. I don't know why I just love any Mountain Dew goes with any liquor and just to me it does it's, you know it wasn't about I just loved I loved the physical action of drinking I loved the way it made me feel and 
I don't think you could have warned me at a young age that, hey, man, this is really dangerous for you to be doing this. All I saw was the positives. All I saw was the good things that were happening. I, um, two, two good stories, I think, of how, what alcohol did for me was I was a sophomore in high school, and I was playing in a golf tournament at Duke University against kids that were older than me. And alcohol calmed my nerves, and I played better golf when I'm drunk. That's a fact. And I, uh, I was 15 or 16, and I was playing against people that were older than me, and I won the golf tournament. It was a two-day event at Duke University, and, and it was kind of prestigious, and I felt, um, I felt accomplished big time. You know, look, look what alcohol can do for me. Like, normally, especially in golf or any sport, you know, you start feeling pressure, and you start feeling uh, nerves, and it can get it would get to me in the past. And I had really unlocked something in life, you know. Drink beforehand, and things go smoother. That's kind of what I learned. Um, but it would quickly kind of like turn on me a little bit. I started experiencing bad consequences. Um, you take drinking a little too far on the golf course, you can get sick because you do do a, a little bit of walking, and there's hills, and sometimes that would happen. So it was always trying to get it just right, you know. Um, I think my favorite story from high school was <laughs> just describes how empty I was is uh, Thanksgiving. And all I remember is acting cool. Like I acted like I knew how to make something called PJ. And I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that I had thought I had seen somewhere that you just put a bunch of liquor into a cooler and then you add a bunch of fruit juice. The amounts are kind of sketchy. No one really knows. You just kind of, you just add stuff. And it ended up being, it was very dangerous for me. I got, all I remember is waking up the next morning with alcohol poisoning and being really sick and having the suspicion that like, I need to slow down. You know, I really need to stop. Uh, I'd take a look at this. But just like clockwork, I went to school that Monday morning, and I remember these, this group of girls approaching me, and they were like, you were so much fun this weekend. And do you remember what happened? I was like, no, I have no idea. And they were like, well, you, you stole your friend's car and drove us all around in it, drinking and listening to music and kind of basically wrecked the car and then just threw the keys somewhere. And then, and I, I just loved it. I, man, soaked it up, you know. Um, I was the man in high school, I thought. But my first major consequences would come when I was 17, and I got arrested at school. Uh, homecoming dance in a limousine, pulled up to the school, and I got searched and breathalyzed, and I went to jail. <coughs> to be 17 in jail for the first time was, uh, it, it sucked. It was terrible. I hate going to jail. And there's that there's a there's a a fall from grace to think that you're like the coolest kid ever and then in a holding cell was was not good I, I just the smell the lights the lights never turn off in jail at least my experience in downtown Raleigh so you can't sleep there's other people that are kind of they don't have your best interests at heart you know the other inmates <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I, the main thing I remember from jail was my attitude in getting out was so desperate for change. I mean, I kind of really believed that 
this traumatic experience of being arrested in front of all my friends at school, then going to jail, being in there for a couple days, and then like getting out and breathing fresh air. I was like, this is it, man. Like, I know that I will change. There was no doubt in my mind that I'd go back to drinking. And I did pretty well for a few months. Um, the school made me go see this counselor. And this counselor, I'm, I'm sure there's a name for it these days, but he basically just taught me alcohol education. He showed me a lot of pictures of like the brain and what it looks like when you're sober versus what it looks like when you're drinking. And they kind of scare you into sobriety. And it's just like the book talks about like self-knowledge, fear, and willpower. Like that, that was almost verbatim of what they teach you in those classes. It's like if you just learn more about your brain, if you just become stronger, and if we just scare you into prison time, you'll get sober. And it makes perfect sense without knowing AA. I mean, makes sense. I don't want to go to prison. I, I want to keep my brain cells. And I, and I could be more disciplined in areas. And that's kind of, that was my recovery program my senior year of high school. And it worked for a few months. I did not want to go to prison. And I, did, I saw kids that were going to college and that looked attractive. You know, they took school seriously and they wanted to be lawyers or doctors or, the, or whatever. And I was like, man, that's cool. I want to do that. Like, I really do want to be somebody. And so I worked, <laughs> I worked really hard to graduate and decided to go to Cape Fear Community College. Uh, yeah, go Cape Fear. Uh, yeah, the, uh, of my, a lot of my story, thinking about it, is really just people doing so much to help me and giving me so many good opportunities and then me just squandering it. That's exactly my life story. Mason, you seem like you're serious. We want to help you. Here you go. Me not doing well. And then to take it a step further, it's your fault for helping me. You didn't help me the right way. And that's my, I mean, my parents, even though it was community college, it, it takes a big investment to like get someone into an apartment, classes, the investment it takes to send a child to, to college. And I had done well for like that six months between getting in trouble and then, of course, I'm at the beach, and I was like, I can drink a little bit. You know, I've just made kind of, probably just made a big deal out of this. You know, I'm 18 now. That was it, you know. Um, and probably within two or three months, I started, I don't know the term for it. I think it's just I was starting to become addicted to alcohol. Like, I was starting to experience something in the mornings where I would be shaking, flu-like symptoms. I, was, I just thought I always had the flu or something, you know. Um, and I think who was it that spoke uh, maybe it was Brian Brian Gift talks about that a little bit in his story that I remember just like not knowing why I was sick and not knowing why I needed something I just knew that drinking would make me feel better but then I would start like throwing it up a little bit you know not to get too gruesome but it was like I couldn't keep anything down it's a really sad place to be especially at age 18 I didn't know what was wrong with me um, of course I leave college come back to Raleigh, and this time I'd found a medication to get on, which can kind of help with those symptoms, but then I just drank more on top of it, and that just made things like, now I can hold my liquor, but now I'm just like really intoxicated all the time, and I was a pizza delivery driver for a little while, 
Um, don't know. I think all of us have probably been a pizza delivery driver of some sort or <laughs> getting in accidents, getting a DWI. So in 2009, I went to, my parents basically challenged me. I love a good challenge. And they were like, Mason, if you can show us that you're worthy of another chance at college, you know, we will do what we can to get you back into school. And I'd seen this commercial on TV for a, because great ideas start with seeing a commercial. And it was said, uh, <laughs> it said, turn your passion for golf into a, into a profession. Perfect. This is great. And uh, it was in Hilton Head, South Carolina. You play golf all the time. You go to class, you take golf classes, and they certify you to be a golf professional. Like, this is perfect. And it actually is a good school. I'm sure it's great. But I went down there and, and just started drinking again. Oh, man. I haven't relived a lot of these memories in a while, so talking about it just makes me sad. I'm like, man, I didn't. I stood no chance at all. I was just like a little kid thinking that like willpower would help me, or if I just, you have to want it bad enough. I used to hear that all the time. Man, you just need to want it. Like, do you want to be sober bad enough? I'm like, well, I think so. I don't know. I do. You really want to be a professional golfer? You have to like discipline, like kind of military style. People always tried to hit me with that and speaking of the military the uh my college career there ended on my birthday in 2009 I'll never forget this day I was was playing golf drinking gambling I lost a lot of my money and I get into a road rage incident with someone (laughs) drunk he had pulled out in front of me I'm flicking him off I'm getting in front of him and we're playing this game and I just remember pulling up to my apartment and getting out and the guy coming at me and I grab a golf club and I swing it at him. And in midair, he ended up being a Marine. And uh, true story, he grabbed the golf, like I swung, he just grabbed it with one hand. (laughs) And then punched me in the face and I was out. (laughs) And... He went to the same golf school. We didn't even, yeah, I'll never forget him. He was, he was such a good guy, too. He was such a good guy. He was like, you swung on me, man. I was like, dude, I'm just grateful you didn't keep beating me up, you know? Like, and the police came. It was a huge ordeal. Yeah, i never forget that. Just, just, he just grabbed it like it was slow motion. Nothing and... I think that's one of the first and only times I've been in a fist fight. I mean, it wasn't a fight. It just, it just uh, it's good to laugh about it now. I was so ashamed and embarrassed. That's what I remember from that event. Like, like everyone saw what happened, and I was the lowest person ever. And so I leave there, come back to Raleigh, and things just go from bad to worse. I keep getting arrested, can't stop drinking any uh, attempt I make to get help is half-hearted, half-measures, I guess. And uh, on March 1st of 2010, it's kind of an important day. That was my first ever AA meeting. Um, Jay Hazelden was at the healing place, and my mom and his mom were friends. And I called my mom for $100 
And she said, Mason, I've been talking to your friend's mom. I don't know if I should, should have mentioned his name or not, but um, been talking to his mom and he's in a, a recovery program. We think you should go there too. And I was like, well, if you give me the hundred dollars, <laughs> I will go the next day. And I really meant it. I meant it. Yeah. A hundred dollars is a perfect amount to last a day. I thought, you know, but I, I have what the book calls, I think is the phenomenon of craving. Once I start, I can't stop. And I don't know where I'm going to be in 24 hours. I mean, there's no telling. So about a week later, I called my mom back. <laughs> and she was crying. It wasn't, this wasn't fun anymore. You know, life's not fun anymore. I can't stop. I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to alcohol. That word addiction's kind of loose, but I think that's the best way to describe it. I was physically dependent to alcohol, 100%. Um, so I'm ready to go to treatment. Save your tears, I'm ready. And uh, so she takes me. March 1st, go to my first ever AA meeting, and I picked up a white chip. And it's just funny, another theme of my story is making these great plans when I'm drunk, but as soon as I wake up somewhere sober, that willingness is not there anymore. And as soon as I start to feel a little physical pain, or I can't sleep, or I can't eat, you know, as soon as I start to detox, I just bolt. And that's exactly what happened there was a speaker that night and I, what, what I remember from the speaker was thinking, well, of course this guy's going to talk good about AA. Like he's sober in AA, like that survivorship bias, you know, like <laughs> he's not going to speak poorly on the program. Like, well, he's, it's worked for him. And that's, that was just my general attitude towards everything was everyone's different. You've gotten, you know, I didn't believe that anyone had gotten to where they are in life through hard work. You guys have just been given stuff, you know, uh, and I'm entitled to things and I've just gotten a bad hand. That's really how, how I started to think like every, the world owes me something, um, poor me. And if I could just feel good, then I wouldn't drink. You know, if I just, if my mommy issues that, whatever it was, you know, like that's just how I was. I was a child. I was a big kid. So I would keep drinking, and um, I kind of got I, I got scared into getting sober. So I, I stayed at that treatment center from September to November, 14 months, and I would get sober. And that, um, <coughs> it was really because of a bunch of court dates when I look back on it. I mean, I had so many court dates in so many different counties around North Carolina, and I really had nowhere to go that the treatment center seemed like a good option. And it is impossible for me to talk without moving my hands. I just noticed that. <laughs> I'm trying hard to like not do it, but it's just not happening. But so I, I have experience in AA. So from September 15th of 2010 to November of 2016, I was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's, it was during that time at that treatment center where I met people in this room, a lot of you guys, and there's a solution was my home group for, for a few years of that. And looking back, it was, uh, some, obviously it was like survivorship bias. It was like the six best years of my life. Um, I was very 
committed to the program. I, I loved being sober. I tried to be helpful where I could be, and I relapsed. In November of 2016, what I remember is life started getting a little bit heavy, felt a little heavy. I was taking on a lot. I was very materialistic, kind of starting to become a little uh, obsessed about things. I really wanted a house, and I wanted the, the girlfriend and the child, and those things came. And so I did feel I was drifting apart a little bit. Uh, looking back, I can see that. But the main springboard of my uh, relapse I hope this experience is helpful. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's just my story. It's what happened. Um, is I had a root canal. True story. And so I was drifting apart from the program a little bit. And I remember thinking when the doctor said, hey, we're going to give you some pain medication. I remember thinking, um, probably not a good idea. Probably shouldn't do that. But I just, I don't know. But then I said, yes. It's like, yeah, no, I'm in pain. I need it. And looking back, that, you know, people had, excuse me. You guys had taught me. Well, yeah, people in AA definitely had taught taught me. Mason, um, it's probably best that you be chemically free from everything. You know, that we don't, we're not doctors. We don't try to tell people what to do, but knowing your story, knowing where you've come from, maybe you should just total abstinence. And I really believe that. But for whatever reason, when I said no and I took that first pill, it changed my brain. It 100% did. I would love to tell you that it didn't. I mean, to go six years sober, to take anything, mood or mind altering, like set me off right then and there. Not, no, no doubt about it. And within a couple weeks, I was drinking. Um, yeah, and I remember that was a sad, sad few months. I would drive down the road drunk and think, man, I screw, like, what have I done? Like, I can't get that sobriety back. Like, I have made a huge mistake. I'm, I'm drinking. I'm drinking and driving again. Like, where, what has happened? I didn't, it was like, for those six years, I felt plugged in, in a way. Like, I was literally a, an outlet, and I was plugged into something greater than me, and I couldn't explain it. And as soon as I took that first one, it was like I was unplugged, 100%. That connection was gone. I was like, man, I've, I've screwed this up. And within two months, I was at a detox at Fellowship Hall in Greensboro. What a great place that place. I mean, fantastic place. I made it uh, maybe two days. One of my biggest regrets, I, they were so nice to me there, and I met so many good people. But once again, I, I remember making plans. I was drunk, and I was like, I'm going to go to Fellowship Hall, and I'm going to get my life back. And then I wake up shaking, sweating, and I was like, nope, not today. Not going to happen. Um, man, I think about um, the obsession I had around that time was I just want my life to get better. I don't really want to stop drinking. I really just want my life to get better. And I can admit that now. And I'm a smart cookie, man. I'm smart. I finally realized I might have to stop drinking if I want my life to get better. (laughs) And it would be such a fairy tale story if like, 
the day that I realize that I may have to stop drinking is my sobriety day, but it's not. That's not my sobriety date at all. It took another three and a half years to get back into the program, you know, and that's to me what alcoholism is, is it's not, it's not consequences, it's not circumstances. It's like when I honestly wanted to stop, which I did around that time, I couldn't stop. I mean, things got really, really bad. Um, in one of my stints of sobriety, I think I was 30 days sober, and no real program. I had taken a job traveling, trying to climb cell phone towers, and <laughs> things were good. I can it, a lot of the, it kind of reminds me of like Fred's story or Jim's story in the book, or even parts of Bill's story where. I think it says somewhere the goose hung high for a while or something like that, like feeling kind of confident. And I'm, things are good. 30 days sober. I've got a good job. Uh, I remember my son's mother sending me all these sweet text messages, you know, like so proud of you. Uh, even her mom, you know, love a text message from an in-law, you know, Mason. <laughs> We're so proud of you for doing the right thing. Put your family first. Don't worry about the past. Like you can do this. And, and then my son's mother, uh, her name's Cameron, she surprised me with tickets to Carowinds. I'm like, man, this is nice. 30 days sober. I love pretty girls. I especially love pretty girls that want to take me to Carowinds. You know, um, and it was all, she planned out this great weekend. I was, I couldn't, oh man. I was, I was in North Dakota working and we were going to drive back to Chicago me and the work guy and I was going to meet Cameron in Charlotte at Carowinds. I was going to fly from Charlotte or excuse me, Chicago to Raleigh, drive from Raleigh to Charlotte to meet her at Carowinds for the whole weekend. Life is great. 30 days sober. I was in Chicago airport and in the airplane, in the airplane, I remember thinking just like the big book says, that was like, I should drink. I should drink because I haven't slept real good. I've been sober 30 days. I'm about to go to Carowinds with her where I know I can't drink around her. So I should just get it in now. And I, I remember be, debating in my head, like, well, how much do I drink? It's a good ponderable question. One drink I know will. <laughs> one drink, like I really just wanted to pass out. I just wanted to sleep the whole, the whole plane ride. So I could be energized for the drive from Raleigh to Charlotte. And I know one drink will just make me like chatty Kathy. I'll just talk people to death. So I got to do more than one. Two drinks will make me like real touchy feely. Nobody wants that. So three drinks it was. Three, three airplane shots, which to me is a lot when you haven't drank for 30 days. So I took three and um, just like the part in... Fred's story, I think it is, where he says, I have little recollection of what happened for the next such and such time, just vague memories of a taxi driver, and that's exactly what happened to me. I, what I, well, I know the story now. I can trace my steps back, but basically what happened was is I get back to Raleigh, and I start driving to Charlotte, and I realize when I get to Burlington that I have left this company's equipment at the baggage claim. And it was like thousands of dollars worth of like cell phone tower climbing equipment. And <laughs> I turn around 
I never make it to the airport because I pass out. What I remember is waking up at home in Clayton, North Carolina, the next day. And I look at my car and there's grass and mud everywhere. And I have a bunch of missed phone calls and I've got a headache and I'm thinking, what has happened? And I look at the side of my car and there's like a gash across my whole car. And I remembered it came back to me. I couldn't figure out how to get home, but I hit a guardrail. So I just drove along the guardrail for like 15 miles. And that's what the gash was in my car. And the sadness, it's, you know, it's good to laugh now. It wasn't funny then. It was sad. I felt terrible. Um, Cause I knew, like I knew that I, I didn't, I don't want to be this guy. Like, I don't, I didn't want to do any of that. Like, I want to be at Carowinds with this girl that I love sober. I want, like, I want, I don't want to lose my son. I don't want to lose her. I don't want to lose this house. And I made a decision right then and there. I was like, I'm going to stop, man. Like, this has to stop. This, I'm not, this is not the person I want to be. That was in 2017. And my sobriety date's not till 2021. That way of, that mode of living would just keep going. And it's the hope that kills me, kills us or kills me. And it's the hope that kills other people. Um, I, I would I had this habit of like I could get it together for a couple weeks and renew people's hope. And then when, when I would relapse, it would just destroy him again. And then to think that there was a child involved, you know, my son would see me sober, doing well. And then I couldn't get it together. Moved to Hartsville, South Carolina, thinking that would work. That didn't work too well. Um, wherever I went, I took myself with me, you know, and in an effort to speed things up, the, uh, remember getting an ultimatum from my son's mother and her family. (laughs) They, they play a role in this too. (laughs) Uh, I remember them. This is the best ultimatum I've ever gotten in my life. It was, we are going to pay for you and her to go to Costa Rica. (laughs) Perfect sense, yeah. And this is your last chance to kind of rekindle things and stay sober. Yeah, perfect, let's go. (laughs) Things are great. And, uh, man, I ended up, yeah, in Costa Rica, there's, they, they assign you this, like, liaison who's basically, like, a local, but he's, like, the smartest best looking local that there is who can speak both languages and they kind of chauffeur you around. And so he's your go-to guy. And I was like, Hey man, can you take me to like some pharmacies that are nearby? And, um, I disappeared for an entire day, get back. She's livid. And all I remember her saying is I wish you would have never came. And so in the middle of the night, I bought a plane ticket and I left Costa Rica the next day. And I got an Uber from Charlotte Airport to her in-law's house, showed up at the door and was like, I want to see my son. And I remember the mom looking at me saying, well, where's our daughter? I was like, well, she's in Costa Rica. And the look on her face when she was like, you left my daughter in Costa Rica. I was like, yeah. And there was nothing wrong in my mind. There was nothing wrong with that. Like, I could not separate true from false. I was so far gone drinking as soon as I, I mean, that's insane behavior. And there's probably at least 
two dozen people in the room that I've personally called and been like, why can't I see my son? Well, Mason, because of things like that. That's why you can't see your son, you know? But I was so far gone. I mean, really, truly. And I'm thankful for you guys for beating the truth into me, saying, you know, but I wasn't honest with most of you guys about stories like that. You know, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't want to be. And, oh, it's sad. It breaks my heart talking about it because, um, you know, people, people in my life deserve better than what they got. Um, on July 4th of 2020, she left me for good and I had nowhere to go. And for a year, I came around AA trying to get better, trying, just doing my best. You know, you guys loved me. So many people in this room and in this area um, showed me so much love, patience, and tolerance. And I just wasn't willing, man. It's not that I don't love you guys, didn't believe what you guys said. I just, I don't know. I, I don't like that phrase, uh, you're just not ready. But I think that, I mean, that's all I can really pinpoint it to. I just wasn't ready. I hadn't had enough pain. And June 15th, 2021, the day before I got sober, I was living in uh, behind a dumpster not far from here, a little shopping center called Mission Valley. Um, I had gotten pulled over a couple times and gotten away with driving without a license and driving uh, drunk, driving with uh, no insurance, driving without a license plate. I've told some of y'all this story. It's a long story, but the point is I got pulled over twice highly illegally and the cops just told me to leave so I thought man I need to sell my car and, <laughs> but that left me homeless because I was living out of my car and I remember I had spoken I had spoken to Rick Rick is here tonight I remember him and I speaking about Florence South Carolina and he and I, I don't think he would mind me saying this I think he had gone to a, a or he had known of a facility in Florence called the Owl's Nest and I had found this owl feather outside, and my brain was so far gone. It's a sign. It's a sign. It's the only, I mean, it's the only thing I had to go off of. I couldn't put together a thought at all. So it was like I got this owl feather, and there's a treatment center in Florence called the Owl's Nest. And that's, I mean, that's how... I mean, when you're, when you're living behind a dumpster, you just got to go with stuff like that. You know? um, I would, it was terrible. I wanted to stop so bad. I, I, I mean, I knew the way I was living wasn't what I had envisioned for my life. I, you know, that, I've heard people say it in the room too, that feeling of waking up at, Excuse me, that feeling of being awake at 7 a.m. and seeing other people who are waking up and starting their lives. And I was homeless right beside Cup of Joe right there. So people are like on the morning commute going to get their coffee. And I'm thinking, man, how do they do that? Like, how do they live normal life? Like, I'm still awake and they like, I don't know. And then, but then the, like the guilt and shame turns into like restlessness and irritable and discontent. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to keep drinking. Like, I can't, I can't deal with this. Like, my life's a failure, so the only solution is to keep drinking, and oh, I hated it. So I decided to follow my intuition, and I bought a bus ticket to Florence. I'm going to go to the Owl's Nest, and I really felt like I was willing. And I get down. This is my favorite part of my story. I wish I would have saved more time for this part, but um, thank you guys for listening. Um, 
But so I, I take a Greyhound bus station, and there's nothing more, I don't know what the word is, like there's something about a Greyhound bus with everything you own going to a new place, you know. I'd done it before, and it hadn't worked. There was no indication that this was going to work or that I was doing anything I hadn't done before. But I get to the bus station, I call the Owl's Nest. I can't stop drinking. I'm going to die. I need somewhere to go. And they, the lady listened to me, sweetheart. She was like, look, I, if it was up to me, I would let you in. But we don't accept people who don't have health insurance. And she, so it would be like $15,000 for you to come for 30 days. You know, and of course they ask you, you know, do you know anybody? I'm like, no, I do not know where to get $15,000. And in that moment, it was like, I felt so defeated. Like, man, I've just taken this drastic action to get on a Greyhound. To me, it was drastic to go on a Greyhound to, to a new town with trash bags full of my stuff. And they're rejecting me. Like, I'm not meant to be sober. There's that self-pity came back again. Like, nobody wants me. I'm worthless. I can't even get into treatment, you know. And she called me back and she said, look, like, there's no chance of you coming here, but I can give you a number of a guy in AA. And his name's Donovan. I don't know who Donovan is. Um, but she, the way she talked, she implied that he was just going to pick me up and give me a ride to some meetings or something. I'm like, dude, I'm homeless. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't have anywhere to go. And so I called this guy, and he, he basically 12-stepped me on the phone. He told me all these, like, really intimate details about his drinking. He told me about all the trouble he had gotten in, how he was homeless, how he had come to Florence. And back then, that treatment center took people off the street. So that was his story, but he was like, now I'm committed to try to help people like you if you want it. And... It's like, yeah, man, I'll do whatever I have to do. And a funny thing started happening when he met me and there was this connection made between him and I. Like it was the first time in years that the truth started to come out. And it was a complete stranger. But he had won my confidence. You know, when he told me these stories, for some reason I felt something. It was obvious that his life was different and that he didn't want anything from me. Um... And I just told him the truth. I said, man, I can't stop. And I'll do anything. I kind of threw my hands up. I was like, just tell me what to do. He was like, okay, well, I think there's a place you can go. And I know today he, he lied to me, actually. He said, uh, he said, there's this house in Florence, and a group of guys live there, and they work the steps, and it's AA-based, and you'll have everything you need there. Only condition is you have to work. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, that sounds like what I need. And we pull up. We, we drive like 30 minutes outside of Florence. And it's not a house. It's a trailer park. I was like, dang, dude. And he's like, no, nah, it's cool, man. Like, we own five of these trailers. So there's like 30 trailers in this trailer park. But like five of them, they, he owned. And the central trailers where they have meetings and like workshops... And you live in the trailers, and they, they give you rides to meetings. They give you a ride to work. He was like, are you willing to work? And I was like, absolutely. I need, like, I kind of instinctively knew that, you know, I hadn't worked an, a day of, like, honest labor in a minute. You know, it had, been, it had been a time. So when he said you had to, like, 
it was cool how he phrased it. He was like, you have to get a crappy job while you're here. He was like, it's not about the money. It's just about you learning how to work and be on time and learn some work ethic. And that sounds good when you're drunk like I was. I was like, yeah, man, I'll do anything, you know. And like the first day I was there, I slept. He told me he'd wake me up at 7 a.m. And him and I did what they called the morning meditation. We read through pages 86 to 88. We skipped around, did some other literature. And before he even addressed anything, he prayed with me. And it's something he was big on. Like, he prayed all the time with me. He was like, you know, the upon awakening and the serenity prayer, the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer. And I had had experience. I, Madeline and I were talking about this at dinner. Like, I had had experience in AA. And I had told him that I had. And he was very big on me just forgetting everything I thought I knew. He was like, man, I'm, I'm, that's cool that you've been sober before. That's cool about Raleigh. But, like, just try to forget all of that if you can. Like, not that he was diminishing it he was just like i want you to have a new experience and try this like for the very first time and we would say prayers like that like the set aside prayer um he taught me i wrote it down in my big book and things started to change for me really quickly um my third day in we did a formal third step four days sober he had me writing a four step i had all the time in the world you know i didn't i didn't have an id um, not just a driver's license. I didn't even have an ID card. I could not prove to you that I was who I said I was. So I thought that that was my get out of work card. I can't work. I don't have an ID. And my first roommate there at three days sober, he relapsed and had to leave, but his job was as a dishwasher at this restaurant. And he was like, there you go, man. It's like, I, I'm not willing to be a dishwasher. And I'd said that to him. He was like, well, you're going to be a dishwasher. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with washing dishes, but, like, um, it was probably the best thing for me, really. I mean, I washed the heck out of some dishes for the first, <laughs> first 80 days I was sober. And life started to change, you know. If life didn't, if the obsession hadn't been removed from me early on, like, like, I wasn't staying there just because I was homeless and I wanted a free ride or anything. Like, I really wanted to be sober, and I started to feel results, you know? And something I, I like to talk about, like, if my whole early sobriety had just been terrible, I don't know what would happen, but I, I got into the steps quickly. He made me get a home group quickly, get service commitments, start praying. I started doing anything I could in AA because I did not want to drink again. And, I, and still to this day, I don't want to drink again, so I... He was big on making commitments, keeping commitments. Those are foreign concepts to me. He was big on not complaining to other people about my problems. He was like, you can complain to me, but don't, don't vomit on other people. Like, you and I will meet once or twice a day. Call me whenever. Like, let's go through it. And, man, I'm so grateful for that. The, uh, a little side note. Um... I don't know how to, so I really got into, <laughs> I wanted to talk for some reason about the living conditions there were so bad. The mosquitoes in South Carolina are terrible. And when you start getting sober, like when you're drinking, the mosquitoes don't want to bite you, man, because your blood's full of toxins, you know. But as soon as I got sober, man, I buffed up and got all these mosquito bites. And 
but I learned to be, I learned to be grateful, man. It was a big part of like, I had no other options and I really wanted life to get better. Um, so at 80 days sober, I got fired from being a dishwasher and it was one of the more humbling days that I had. And I'd gone through this pink cloud the first 80 days. Um, things were good. And then I had just moved out. I'm into a halfway house at this point, and I get fired. What am I going to do? It was my first big obstacle or my first kind of big uh, thing in sobriety, the first issue I had to go through. And the people in that community and my sponsor really showed me how to go through it by just putting one foot in front of the other. They taught me how to make amends to my previous employer. They taught me how to just keep keep moving forward. Um, it was around that time. I've told this story, I think. It was right around that time I got, there was a retreat here in North Carolina, and Steve Murphy actually picked me up. I t- took a Greyhound bus from Florence to Raleigh. He picked me up, and I told him about, man, Steve, you wouldn't believe it, man. I was doing so good for 80 days, 90 days. I moved out of this one place into a halfway house, and but then I get fired, man, and life's terrible, and Steve just kept, kept nodding his head and was just like, man, just be patient. I was like, out of all the stuff I just said, that's the only thing you had to say. <laughs> Be patient. But he was right. Like, that's exactly what I needed to do was just keep putting one foot in front of the other and be patient. Um, man, there's so many cool stories that I want to I wanna tell. But um, so it's been 20 months. And what life kind of looks like today for me is I think I suffered from this old idea. I know I did that if I could ever get sober, life would suck. I would never experience freedom and that, I, and that I would always be restricted to this little recovery community that's in Florence. And just being here, is, it's obvious that that's not true. You know, what I found in Alcoholics Anonymous is freedom, like total freedom. What I do for work today is I, I do get to travel a good bit. And wherever I travel, I seem to meet people just like you guys, and I really enjoy it. I was, uh, I think it was about a month ago, last story and I'm done, I promise, but um, I told Aaron, Aaron asked how I was doing when we had dinner for Melissa's birthday, I think it was, at the, the Chinese place. He was like, how, how, was your, uh, how was your Christmas break? I was like, man, it kind of, it wasn't great. I was like, man, I was alone for the whole week. I was, I found myself alone in my room a lot and I, thinking. You know, terrible place to be, alone, just thinking about my life. He's like, what, what were you thinking about? And I was like, well, where do I want to live? What do I want to do for work? Like, friendships. What about my son? I really want to see my son. And all these questions. Oh, man, where? Do I want to live in Raleigh? Do I want to live in Charlotte? Do I want to live in Florence? Uh, man, it was just going, going, and going. And, like, I'm 18 months sober at this point. I shouldn't be thinking these things. And... So what I did is I used the tools of the program. I started praying. And for the first, like one of the first times was like an actual stating my intentions on how to pray and then like meditating and asking for an answer. Like I literally said, God, I cannot stop thinking about myself and where I want to live and what I want to do for work. And I, it's, it's killing me. I don't know what to do. I need an answer. God, I need an answer now. You know, type, type of prayer. But then I meditated for about 10 minutes 
And what I was expecting was to get an answer that was like, this is where you should live. This is where you should work. This is what you need to do. And I found after about a couple of days, this voice kept coming to me. And I think I'd run it or even told Aaron the story. And this voice just kept saying, Mason, uh, you have it really good right now, man. You get to travel for work sober. You have pockets of enthusiasm of AA in different cities wherever you go. Why don't you just enjoy the journey? That's what came to me. And I was like, I, that's not the answer I wanted. <laughs> but I've learned that, that I think that is like something. I think there's something to that. I think that's the most spiritual answer I've ever gotten from praying and meditating. It was like, Mason, things are okay. Enjoy what you have. Just do the best you can do. And enjoy it while it lasts, man. And that journey has brought me around you guys again. And I'm really, really thankful for that. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Melissa, thank you for letting me, letting me share this.